everyone. You're listening to HBS After Hours, the podcast that pretends to be about business, but, <laughs> but so much honesty yeah, up front. <laughs> uh, or we essentially talk about whatever we think is interesting exactly. and we feel compelled to talk about. I'm Young Me Moon, and I'm here with my buddies Mayher Desai and Felix G. Hi guys, how are you doing? Great. Good, thank yeah, you. You had a good day. Were you teaching today? I was. I taught um, in a case about Apple. It's a financial policy at Apple. It's the shareholder revolt uh, Ooh, in 2030, where they, David Einhorn goes after them and they want the cash back. And it's it's uh-huh. just great. Drama in the classroom. Don't Indeed. You know that? Frankly, you know, anytime you teach a case about Apple, it always goes well because people are like <laughs> loving Apple. Yeah. <laughs> so um, everyone feels strongly about the company. Exactly. Yeah. So it's always kind of a winning solution. What about you, Felix? Were you teaching? I, I taught. Yeah. I also taught. I taught a case about Alibaba. And it's really interesting. It's an older case, and I taught it many times. And it used to be like people would say, Ali, Ali what? Like, what is that thing? <laughs> and now, all of a sudden, uh, they're on everybody's radar screen. And I don't know exactly what it is, but people know so much more. They care so much more, which is really interesting. That's fun. At some point, we have to do a podcast on our favorite cases to teach, which changes from month to month, but, you know, it's always fun really, to talk about. Yeah. That would be good. Yeah. That would be awesome. Okay, but you guys both brought in topics today to talk about. Mahir, what are you going to have us talk about? Well, I want to talk about UBI, universal basic income. It's becoming all the rage, and I'm curious about what you think about it and whether it makes any sense. There are a lot of people throwing it around now. It's an old idea in a way, but it's becoming really, really important, I think. Okay. How about you, Felix? I want to talk about a lawsuit. Someone sued Google in the UK, and this is in the context of the right to be forgotten, trying to force Google to remove a set of links that would lead to the personal history of the people involved in the lawsuit. Yeah. Okay. And then we'll also do picks at the end, right? Our yes. After Always. Hours yep. picks? Always. Okay. Good. All right. So you want to kick us off, my head? Sure. The UBI, as mentioned, is the universal basic income, and it is getting a lot of attention. So Chris Hughes, for example, Facebook co-founder, has a new book out talking about it. You have people ranging from Mark Zuckerberg advocating it, Charles Murray on the right. It's kind of become this idea that everyone believes in. Briefly, you know, what is it? Unsurprisingly, it's universal. Literally, it means that everybody has to get it. And everybody has to get it, and there's no work requirement. So you don't have to work for it, unlike other kinds of programs. I'm curious about what you think about this. Can you describe the motivation for this being? Absolutely. Yeah, so the reason it's getting all this attention is people think, you know, work is dead. And there's this fear of automation, and there's a fear about income inequality. And so the solution is UBI. And it's got this really nice Silicon Valley tinge. We're destroying all the jobs in the world, and we're going to come and save it with the UBI. And it's really interesting. There's some interesting experiments going on in Finland. They're trying a UBI. It's not very well-designed intervention, but they're trying it. So there's all this kind of activity around. And Alaska, right? So Alaska has had a UBI. Sorry, Alaska has had um, the dividends that have been paid out to individuals from their oil fund. And that has been going on for a while. And then we've had negative income tax experiments in the U.S. as well in the 60s and 70s, where we actually tried a UBI. So first is, I'm curious what you think about this solution, which is universal and is not attached to work. The premise of it is you don't have to work. And it's for everybody. And I'm curious how that strikes you. And then I, I'd love to also talk about the premise, which is 
we're not going to have any more jobs, mm-hmm. and so we need mm-hmm. UBI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. so let's maybe start with the premise, which is do you buy into the premise? And then second, what do you think about this design? So my sense is that this view of we have come to the end of work, like there's no more work basically tomorrow afternoon, is completely exaggerated. I mean, even if you believe that, say, with autonomous vehicles, let's say this is a development that, is really, really successful. And tomorrow, everyone who's a professional driver, which is tens of thousands of people, uh, they will all lose their job because we have these self-driving trucks. Relative to the size of the economy and the jobs that get created every month, that's a drop. So the macro effects, I think, are really, really small. Any scenario you look at, the macro effects are small. The individual effects might be traumatic and much of that depends on how quickly does it happen do people we know that people are good at adjusting over time but of course if i'm a professional driver and all of a sudden my profession goes away and if that happens overnight so i think there's lots of really difficult change at the individual level right but the silicon valley story that is about the economy is going to look completely different, I think is complete bogus. Yeah. Funny, because I almost feel like it's part of the Silicon Valley arrogance, you yeah. know, which is, <laughs> yes. we are, it's, it, they're in part, they're saying we're going to destroy all your jobs, but they're also saying that's how important we are, yeah. you know, and it's, it fulfills that basic sense. Do I, you, you know, I understand the appeal of it. I, I, I really do. Because one thing I do believe is that in terms of trends, the economy has become it's more of a liquid economy. And that is, people stay in jobs for a shorter period of time. Yep. They shift from job to job. So there are months when you're sort of not working, you're in between. There's a lot more contract work. There's part-time work, temporary work. So the workforce has become more fluid. And so I can imagine putting this additional sort of safety net, and I can imagine that being really attractive. I think what I worry about, I mean, one of the things when I listen to this conversation I hear people say it's going to create a disincentive for people to go out and work. And actually, that's not my biggest concern. My biggest concern is that I fear that it will have a whole set of unintended ripple effects that we have Mm -hmm. not thought through. So, number one, I worry that it will create a disincentive for us as a nation to continue to invest in other parts of the safety net. Yes, and I absolutely. think UBI yes. is just a drop in the bucket compared to the biggest gaping hole, I think, in our safety net, which is healthcare. So I worry about that. The second ripple effect I worry about is I think it changes the incentive for companies. So if you think about the number of companies today that are resisting the temptation to move into a contract workforce or to use more temporary labor or to use more part-time labor— There are a lot of companies out there that are resisting that because they feel an obligation to take care of their employees. I worry that a UBI would essentially liberate an entirely new set of companies to guiltlessly move to a much more efficient operating model. Because the hard truth is there are a number of companies out there that would really become much more efficient if they did this, but they are resisting it. And then, you know, and then I worry about, I think that one of the things that you see happen is that you see a whole bunch of businesses jump into the market to try to take advantage of the fact 
that suddenly you have people with yeah. a guaranteed future income stream. Right. So imagine if you could borrow against that future income stream. Yeah. So you would see sort of like payday mm. lending times 10. You would see the reinvigoration of subprime mortgage lending. You would yeah. see, you know. So I, I don't think we've yeah. thought through all of these things. Just on the latter one, I want to highlight that because I think it's really interesting. All those three effects are not what people think about. You know, they think about labor supply exactly. typically. But I think you're right about the fact that a lot of people view this as a substitute for everything else, and meaning other welfare provisions, and that's clearly problematic. But on your last point, the Alaska evidence is somewhat consistent with your story. Oh, really? Well, so, you know, actually the Alaska evidence suggests that there is not that big a labor supply change, but they see growth in non-tradables, but they don't see growth in tradables. And so basically you would just have a bunch of new service provision for the people who have these checks. Now, one way to read that is kind of your story, which is now we have a whole bunch of services in Alaska, non-tradables, that are basically letting people spend this money that they're getting mm-hmm. on maybe not the best kinds of things. Um, so that piece of evidence, I think, is really consistent with this, which is there's going to be opportunism. There's opportunism at the government level. There's opportunism at the firm level. Yeah. And now there's going to be opportunism at the entrepreneur kind of level to kind of capitalize on this. So this is uh, probably the economist than me, but uh, part of where I think I see things quite different from the way you see things is in in economics, there's this basic notion that we need to get compensated for work because if it wasn't for compensation, no one would want work. And I understand that's a that's a very narrow and and limited view, uh, but I think it's worth it's worth thinking about in this context. And I'll, I'll throw out I'll throw out two things that I find really interesting. In the 1840s, the average American uh, work week was roughly 70 hours. Okay, uh, it is 40 hours today. We don't think that life today is much more horrible than in the 1840s, even though we spend far fewer waking moments uh, at work. And I think it's consistent with a sense of progress that says, in, actually, to get the income mm. that you need to lead a really nice life, you don't have to spend quite as much time as your great-grandfather and people even before you. That's about wage levels, right? That's not about participation in the workforce. This is actually my second point that I think is really worth thinking about. To people like us, work is so central, right? It's our identity. It's like the professional class without work is like, oh my God, what would I do every day? (laughs) And then I read, Recently, uh, Joan Williams has spoken on the white working class. And one of the observations that she has is, if you ask these families, what would you do if you had extra income? One of the common responses that you would get is, oh, actually, I would not work. I wouldn't have to work. So this idea that, oh, we're drawing more and more people into the workforce, and that's a really great thing. It's such a professional class argument. And so there are lots of jobs. I mean, when you think about the kinds of jobs that many people do, and you ask them, imagine you got a check and right. you'd spend only half of the time at that particular job. It's a better life. It's better than it used to be. Well, do you worry about further bifurcation of, the, of society? Yeah. So, um, you're nodding me here, so it sounds like you know yeah. where I'm going with this. But you could imagine us becoming a two-class culture where people who are invested in work and folks who are not. And it feels doesn't feel like a healthy equilibrium. I mean, this is a little bit of the kind of the makers and takers exactly. logic. It's a little bit of Romney 47%. Exactly. 
And it is problematic, right? And we're already tipping into that, right? We're tipping into that kind of a situation. But imagine a world in which I'm going to sound like a Marxist now, like the means of it's production. All coming out now. The it's means all. of production are owned <laughs> you know, by only a few I people. I always okay? suspect this. <laughs> I know. Yes. Don't mildly tell, unlikely, yes. but uh, don't tell the dean that we have a Marxist. On yeah, the it's only a podcast, so no one will ever know. No one will uh, ever hear it. <laughs> so. Few people own the machines that produce all the wealth. As long as we have the ability to tax, what exactly is the issue? Well, but the issue is this UBI is not a typical kind of tax instrument, right? It is a universal grant. Because it's an almost, allowance. The, almost it's an allowance. all of humanity doesn't have work and a few people own all the machines. Fair enough. I guess I mean I guess what I'm struggling with this conversation is I agree our work is a privilege and we're like incredibly fortunate but I think work is critical to one's identity. I think it's just a really important part of one's identity. Yeah. It's meaningful. We feel that way but do you think people in the 1870s had much more identity than we do today? No, of course they didn't have more identity but it was a part of their well, identity. And I just hours think- dropped 30 hours a week. I think, I don't know, I have this, this is where like your my puritanical instincts come out, which is I kind of believe oh Ooh, This work. is like confession hour. You have a puritan and a Marxist. <laughs> um, I really believe in work. I believe in work as being important, yeah. and I think it contributes, it kind of creates social cohesion. There are values that come out of work, and I find it really hard to kind of provide allowances. I understand that there's virtue. So, for example, in the Finnish case, people have pointed to lower stress levels. And perhaps higher health outcomes. And even in the negative income tax experiments in the New Jersey, there was some evidence of better health outcomes, which, okay. which is real. As a result of a reduction in hours. Yeah, and as, yeah. which is real, right? Yeah, which yeah. is there's less stress and there's, there's ability to do this. But somehow there's something about this which strikes me as so problematic. I agree with the underlying premise that's motivating the conversation, this notion that work... Oh, the AI kind of thing? It's, you know, artificial intelligence, but in addition, more of a contract work society, there's just a fluidity with respect to... So I think the end of work I totally don't buy, and I, I don't see it happening in that way, and I think that's right. Yeah. But there is fluidity, and there is more contract work, and that is important. But that doesn't mean, I don't think, that we should be granting a universal basic income. And, and to your point, I think the most important thing for me is what you said about other programs. Right? So there's like a great program. It's called the Earned Income Tax Credit. It's what we should be doing, and we should be doing more of it. And instead, we're going to do but a it, UBI. But that's applied more judiciously, right? It is applied more Which judiciously. I like about it. And it has got work incentives. Yeah. Um, we should make it much more generous. Uh, that's where I see the debate going, you know, which is UBI has attracted a lot of attention, but the reality when you get to the ground is going to be something much more like what we should do, which is an earned income tax credit. I'm going to move us along because, Felix, I know you have something. So every now and then I, I see sometimes even like small articles in the paper and I think, oh, my God, I never really thought about that. And then I think about it for five minutes and I have no clue how I should even yeah. begin to think about this issue. And so this was the case with this, with this lawsuit uh, where some people, uh, two, and actually it's uh, two people in the UK who are trying to to force Google to remove links that lead to episodes of their life that they're not that they're not proud of. Uh, one person was involved in some fraudulent accounting, and and in the European framework, there's there's some legal justification to do so because there's this landmark decision in two thousand uh, in two thousand fourteen by the highest court in Europe that in 
a, a Spanish case decided that a Spanish person had the right to ask Google to remove links to a story having to do with uh, the sale of a house and debt that he had mm -hmm. paid back since. One way to think about the right to be forgotten is that it's sort of privacy in reverse. Privacy is all about non-public information and we want to do everything not to let that information be public. And the right to be forgotten is in the other direction. There is public information, but there's reason to think or believe that we want to remove it from the public sphere and we want to make it we want to make it private. And so reading this story, I thought, oh my God, if I was the judge and I yeah. know nothing about British law, which probably wouldn't make me a very good judge, I would think, like, what would I decide? How would I begin to think about these issues? And so, of course, my intuition is ask my friends. Wait, so this is a, a guy that was convicted of financial accounting wrongdoing, so some kind of business That's malpractice. Right. So he was convicted. Yes. But now he's saying he doesn't want anyone to know that he was convicted. Yes, and one interesting wrinkle is under British law today, if that conviction is a couple of years back, for instance, you no longer have an obligation to disclose it yes, in, exactly. when you apply for jobs. So there is a brick-and-mortar oh, side of the law, okay. if you will, that so says actually, yes, you, can, you, you, you don't can have to disclose. Exactly. But of course, on the web, as you know, yeah. everything persists. Yeah. And so the right to be forgotten is this idea, should we allow, uh, what are the conditions under which we should allow people to erase their history? So you're dubious about this, I'm. You know, it's so funny. Right at the beginning, I was so sympathetic. I was like, I don't, you know, Google has all this information. Why can't we get it? Why isn't it part of my identity? Why do yeah. I have to have it out yeah. there? But the more I thought about it, I found it really hard to be sympathetic. And I don't know what the grounds are for forgetting. I don't really understand that. I think it doesn't work, you know, right of, the right of privacy doesn't work in reverse. I don't think that is the way it works. And two things. One is, I think it makes people a little bit more irresponsible about putting stuff on the web if you know you can take it back. And, mm -hmm. I, and then the second thing is, um, I was trying to analogize to things like celebrities, you know, who, for example, can sue somebody for libelous things that yep. are wrong. Yep. These aren't really wrong things. They're just things. They're facts. Yeah. They're facts. Yeah. And yeah. they happened the in some happened. my yeah. past. And That's, I have a very hard time being sympathetic I'm to I'm unconvinced as well. I mean, if you think about the ocean of information that's out there about us, about everyone, it strikes me that if we're going to put boundaries around that, we should start with sort of the most extreme things. So the most extreme, like the top of the hierarchy, I think, would be, you know, links to things about you that are verifiably false. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like the fake news stuff. Yep. And then maybe slightly below that are things about you that are verifiably true, but of zero public interest. And like, so imagine if the world knew every website you've ever visited, every show you've ever watched on Netflix, every video you've watched on YouTube. I mean, I think most people would be horrified. But, you know, that stuff has sort of no public interest. So that would go next. And then far below that, I would put information that is verifiably true and actually does have public interest. So the fact that you've been convicted of business malpractice, I think is relevant information for anyone who is considering whether or not they should go into business with yeah. you. So let me try to push back on, on the argument. So I totally get Mihir's first incentive point. If, if I know that I can remove it sometime in the future, then the likelihood that I engage in you know, bad behavior uh, increases. But I think there's a, there's a really 
important second incentive effect, and that is the ability to start new. Mm. Okay, so think about uh, a world in which once I have done something wrong, there is just no chance ever to recover, and I can never get a job, and I can never move on, and so. Given that we live in a world where people every now and then misbehave and they do things that are not right, uh, I think we want to think about that second incentive effect also. But we're, 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 not, but we're not talking about imprisoning people who are debtors. Like, people have second chances. You can make the case to the employer that this is something that is, has been in the past. I mean, is it so punitive that we're like condemning people for failing? I think it's not. So it so depends, bad. right? So if you want this person as a business partner with whom you co-invest is probably a very a very different a very different conversation but i think if you think about where does good behavior come from i think good behavior in part comes from i think okay so i made a mistake in the past but now and this is i think why we have to break a mortar version of these laws yes yes uh, that we enable new beginnings and the internet has made it much harder to have a new beginning because everybody can, you know, find out what happened to you in the past. So what do you think about that? So I think what's interesting about that particular example is that, to put it in your language, this internet thing is undercutting the bricks and mortar piece, right? Yeah. So we actually have yeah. a, a, a legal regime that says you don't have to disclose. And in those settings, I think it's interesting, but it, it still doesn't mean that the employer can't understand what actually happened and take the information and do with it what he will. I mean, the legal regime is still there and the spirit of it is still there. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, in your example, uh, in the brick and mortar case, you don't have to reveal it if you're asked. But that employer could always go look up the court records. I mean, they're available. They're public. That's right. You know, and they don't seal them. So, I But it's a I lot guess, easier. Yeah, no, and, and I get that. So I'd say two things. One is, I mean, I don't, I don't think it should be quite so easy to start over. And under cases where I think we all are in agreement that, you know, the world should be a more forgiving place, I think there are boundaries. So, for example, for, you know, juvenile crimes and things. But notice that the, the boundary is placed at the point of disclosure, right? So it's right. not it's not it's not around dissemination. It's like that stuff is just sealed, you yes. know. And I think that's an important distinction. So, you know, the second thing I would say is that if it's the case that we decide that there are certain areas that the Internet makes public or makes more readily available that we, as a society, are now becoming profoundly uncomfortable with, I would expect that over time you would see kind of a regulatory infrastructure get imposed that mm -hmm. would, you know, and the regulatory system, the legal system, always lags innovation, right? I mean, it was... I mean, think about how many years it took before we had a speed limit, you know, between the time cars are on the road. It's kind of, yeah. you know, it's, there's always sort of a lag there. But if you were to ask me, is this the problem that we should be focused on right now with respect to the ocean of information out there on the Internet? You know, is this the thing that we should be trying to bottle at the source? I don't know if I would identify this as being the thing. You know? Just because you think there's so much false information out there. Yeah, I mean, just so, for example, not just false, so the false information is out there, but just think about people can post and disseminate without consent naked photos of other people out there. And there are some laws, but they're super inconsistent and not even close to being comprehensive. So that's something that 
I just think there's a hierarchy of concern. Right. And that, that's, the, just to be clear, that's where you think all the action should be. I think a lot of the action should be around that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But again, the question is, you know, where do you place the boundary? At the point of disclosure or at the point of dissemination? So, for example, you think about, you never see, almost never see on the internet, People's medical records. Why? Because there are laws in place, HIPAA laws, and at yep. the point of disclosure. You never see people's academic transcripts. Mm-hmm. Why? Because at the point of disclosure, there are FERPA laws that yeah. you know, yep. yeah. seal that stuff up. It's actually interesting how maybe the internet makes that distinction a little bit a little bit less relevant because the way the right to be forgotten works is the information is still there. Right? So it's not as though we're yeah. taking the information off the newspaper archive that has the article about yeah. what you did. It's just by removing Google's ability to index that particular page, yeah. it's as if the page doesn't exist. I but mean, this is, this is the other thing that's really interesting here. If Google doesn't point to it, yeah. it literally doesn't exist. But yeah. the, the truth is, it's the best safeguard in an ocean of information is the notion that you can just hide in, in plain sight, right? But when you have... When you have a service like Google that is optimized for finding needles in haystacks, I mean, that's essentially yeah. what Google does, then you're sort of screwed right? yeah. <laughs> because it will that's just exactly point right. you right yeah. to it. Yeah. Aren't we lucky that we aren't the British judge? <laughs> <laughs> and it is really, I think you're right, it's a testimony to the power of Google, right? The fact that Google is an arbiter of this is problematic, and it speaks to this idea that maybe we need a regulatory regime. But so many of these decisions are now in Google's hands or... In corporate, yeah, corporate decisions. Okay, guys, I'm going to move us on. I want to know your picks for the week. So um, I'm going to go with uh, Netflix, and I'm going to go with a new series, David Chang, who's a food guy. It's ugly delicious, and it's spectacular. The first episode is about pizza, And he basically takes these really common foods and then he explores their history, the kind of luxury version of them, the authentic version of them. What does it mean to be authentic pizza? And then he has like – he's got a fried chicken episode. He's got like a whole bunch of episodes. So A, it's just visually beautiful. You know, B, I love all food shows. And then C, what he does is he actually manages to make it about society, right? So the fried chicken episode is really about – turns out to be about race – and it turns out to be how you talk about food and whether it's mm. coded racism. Um, so there's actually this whole another layer. And then there's always this issue about authenticity, right? What does it mean to be authentic? And what does it mean to have authentic fried chicken? And can you violate that? So mainly it's just visually absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. And I encourage you, if you do watch the pizza episode, you know, make sure you have some pizza coming. Order pizza. <laughs> In advance, because it's I a have beautiful. To say, I do have it bookmarked, because it looks like a beautiful show. It's beautiful. And I love food shows. I love food shows. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Felix? So my recommendation is not really a recommendation. It's, a, it's an innovation that I saw. And I, I love these ideas where companies get their customers to do the work for the companies. <laughs> and then customers feel really good about it. And you, you talked about it a week ago when you, when you talked about the airline check-in that we do ourselves. Yeah. We feel, oh, it's like the best thing ever. So I saw this thing in, it's a bathroom. And in the bathroom, there is a soap dispenser. It's a spray. And there's cotton towels that you can use to clean the toilet before you sit down. And... People love it. The idea is, oh, I'm, I always know it's pristine, it's clean, it's wonderful. 
because I did it myself. <laughs> and of course, when you think about it, it's like just beautiful. Oh my God, you just got me to clean a toilet, and I feel really good about it. I have not seen. Is this a common? Is this coming? So I saw it. I saw it at the airport in Zurich, and so this I spoke. So I spoke so to the. It's I spoke to the person <laughs> whose job it is to clean. It's so Felix to talk to the person. I know. And basically, he's out of a job. He said he walks in and it's sparkling all the time. And he has never seen as many customers ever since they innovated. This also, yeah. And so they're all happy and they're all happy and you feel good about it. It's it's like the checking in yourself. This also reminds me of another recommendation, which is Japanese toilets. Oh, my God. Toto toilets. We'll come back to that. It has that Ooh, same, same. Yeah. Once you experience them, you realize that in America, we are living like animals. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? It's, it's really true. Okay, mine is HBO. There's a documentary mm-hmm. about the Avid Brothers. And the documentary is um, produced by Judd Apatow, which is weird because Judd Apatow is known for these sort of raunchy comedies and so on. And this is just a straight a straight documentary of the Avid Brothers. So the Avid Brothers, I discovered them a few years back. It's not the kind of music I normally listen to. And I don't honestly even like all of their music, but some of their music is just absolutely gorgeous. But the documentary is just like a breath of fresh air. You know? Really? And it, so how's it different? If you think about so much of the music we're surrounded by, so much of it is synthetically produced. It's over-engineered. Mm. It's sort of computer-mediated yeah. music. Yeah. So much of it. And to see the production of music, and it, it's so authentic, it's so, huh. it was so pure, it's just, huh. you know, some people with instruments and everything about them, about the Avid Brothers and their band and everything they do, it really, it's really beautiful. And then, of course, some of the, some of the renditions of the songs, oh my wow. God, yeah, the songs All right. just... You gotta, Something you gotta to watch. watch. It. You I'll gotta, check it out. Yeah. you gotta check right. it out. All right, good. All right, that's it for another week. I'll see you guys next week. Absolutely. All right, thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye.